Matthew chapter 7, if you would. Again, that's page 812, if you're using a Red Pew Bible. The government organization FEMA stands for Federal Emergency Management Agency. And as I looked on the internet, I found that part of what they do is to prepare people for disasters or disastrous situations, including severe weather circumstances. Um, I also found on the same site that failing to prepare for extreme weather has cost America a fortune. In the 30 years between 1980 and 2010, being unprepared for various earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, and such has cost America $1.5 trillion. Not million, not billion, trillion dollars. Not to mention the loss of hundreds and probably thousands of lives. And because of all of that, now almost every major city... And state has what's been called emergency plans. In fact, you've heard our government, or our governor, I should say, uh, during snowstorms or bad weather situations call that we're in a state of emergency. We've now issued tornado watches and warnings. The difference between a watch is that there's potentially bad weather. A warning is that it's probably actually already occurring somewhere or could be occurring somewhere, and you are to take action upon it. We have sirens that go off. You get a phone alert if you have a local flooding problem because of the rain. They're on the TV. They're on the radio. They've really gone out of their way to uh, make warnings part of our culture when it comes to bad weather. Again, the same site went on to say this. With all of that being true in our day, that the number one problem is, and I'll quote, people ignore the risks. People never seem to learn from disaster, it says. I recently read a study of risk perception. And when it comes to risking, and it includes weather and other kinds of risks, it said most people, the vast majority of people, deny that they are vulnerable to these situations. They blindly ignore the alerts, the alarms, the risks, and just hope for the best. That is the average person's emergency plan, hoping for the best. So they tried to combat that more so with declaring April 30th every year to be National Preparation Day. And they encourage people, and they'll give you all kinds of handouts and readouts, all kinds of things, that you can prepare your lives, your family, your home for disasters or emergencies that might come your way, fires and other things. Yet with all of that, and even having a day declared set aside for it, 60% of Americans are not prepared for any disasters at all. They have no emergency plan. They do not know if their house caught on fire what they would do. They don't know how they would get their children out of the upstairs. They don't know how to, when the sirens go off for tornadoes, they don't know what to do. They have no emergency plan. See, FEMA's job is to help people prepare to face disaster because they would say this at one time or another in one form or another disaster is coming see i believe as i read scriptures that the church is god's spiritual fema organization step for us it stands for forever emergency management agency see one of the church's jobs 
is to give the Jesus storm warning to everybody. And Jesus says it very clearly, painfully so, in our text. Our text, Jesus does not pull any punches. And let me demonstrate that by having you look at one small word, and it's the word and, in verse 25 and 27. Notice Jesus does not say, if the rain falls. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say if the floods come. He doesn't say if the winds blow. No, Jesus says, and the rains fall or fell. And the floods came and the winds blow. And Jesus is straight up with us this morning. And he says this, storms are coming. One storm, the storm of God's wrath and judgment in particular, is coming. And you better be prepared for it. This is not a risk that you can ignore because you will do it to your own personal and eternal destruction. Jesus would tell all of us this morning as he concludes his Sermon on the Mount, as he did all of those in his own day, the storm is coming. And perhaps God brought you here this morning, you in particular. You may have thought of going somewhere else. Someone invited you. Maybe you come all the time. But can I tell you this morning, perhaps God brought you here because he wants you to hear the scriptural sirens at least one more time. See, this passage is not a storm watch passage. It is a storm warning passage. This is about judgment, and it's already beginning to take place. And Jesus wants you and I to take action. Unfortunately for our world, and perhaps even some here this morning, most of our world is in a state of emergency when it comes to their sin and relationship to God, and they don't even know it. See, a Category 5 storm is approaching that will destroy people's lives for eternity, and many of us, many of them, are not ready. And so, in the last minutes we have left this morning, would you allow me to help prepare you and get you ready for the storm that's coming? Our text in verse 24 begins, everyone, and Jesus wants us to know that this is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. In fact, he says it again, He says everyone in verse 26, and he wants to include all of us. It doesn't matter what your skin color is, your background, your financial status. It doesn't matter if you're religious or non-religious. It doesn't, see, here's what Jesus says. Everyone is going to face this storm that's coming. In fact, he says everyone then, you see it in the text, the word then? The word then, New King James says therefore, it connects it to the previous passage. Jesus is going to give an illustration about why some people make it into the kingdom and some people don't. Verses 21 through 23, we talked about last time, says that, see, not everyone's prepared. In fact, here's the crazy thing. A lot of people think they are prepared. They think they're ready because, remember last time it said, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do wonderful works? Didn't didn't we do all these things? And he says, I never knew you. See, they thought they were prepared, but they were not. And Jesus, based on the fact that not everyone's prepared for the storm of judgment that's coming, says this. See, I want everyone to know this. And he's going to give us a story, an illustration And he's going to tell us, as he's been telling us for the last number of weeks, that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to prepare for this storm. See, there is a right and a wrong wrong emergency plan. And he said, see, it's like the two gates. There's a wide gate and there's a narrow gate. One of them will lead you to safety, but not both of them. 
He says there are two ways or two roads. One is wide and one is narrow and one is easy and one is hard, he says. See, there are two trees. There are good fruit and bad fruit. And then he comes to our passage, keeping with the antithetical couplets, he says there are two houses. See, there's one that's built on the sand and there's one that's built on the rock because not all emergency plans will work, Jesus says. Not when it comes to this divine storm. So Jesus says, not everyone then, who hear, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. So Jesus is going to use this story, and here's how he sets it up. There are basically two types of builders, and they are to be contrasted. One is wise builder, and one is a foolish builder. And the Greek word for foolish is moron. Jesus is not trying to be insulting. He's trying to tell us that there is a right way and a wrong way to build your house, build your life. The word wise is used seven times, six times. The word foolish is used throughout Matthew's gospel. And every time they are used together, they are to describe opposites. And the person who is a moron, can I say, the person who is foolish... Jesus says, this is not a critique of your intellectual abilities. This is not about how high your IQ is. Foolish people, and the two texts that we're going to look at, are people who did not adequately prepare for the coming storm events. They thought they weren't vulnerable. They ran the risk, and they failed. Can I show you what that looks like? Turn over just a few pages to Matthew 25. The wise and the foolish are contrasted in this text also. Again, with two very different conclusions to each group. In Matthew 25 and verse 1, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. When you got married in the first century Jewish culture, you would get married and you would have an engagement period. You were legally married, but you couldn't live together. And they, they, usually about a year long. And the groom would go away to his father's house and take that year and build on a room and all that goes with it so that he could come get his bride and they could go live in the father's house. And a year would pass and then he'd be ready and he'd come back for the bride. And it was a big celebration. All the virgins or her friends would meet her bring her out and they would meet them in the city and all the people would come but you didn't know exactly when there was not much of a forewarning about when the groom would return you only had a little bit of time and everybody knew that and the wisdom was since you don't know when he's coming he may come at night it says it may come at noon and so you have to if it's the nighttime and your lamps are ready you also take a little flask of oil in case you think he's coming he's coming he's coming but he doesn't quite come and you have to wait around for him your lamp might go out so you always bring a little flask of oil with you to make sure that you can last on into the night. Well the Bible says five of them were foolish and five were wise. For the foolish took their lamps they took no oil with them. They didn't really plan for him to delay any longer, that when he thought he was coming, he would come, it says. As the bridegroom was delayed, it says, the wise took the flask of oil with their lamps, one with oil, one without. And the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. So everybody took a little nap thinking, hey, he's going to come. It's going to be pretty late at night. Here's what happens. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. 
The Bible says, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom says the Bible came, and those, listen to this phrase, and those who were ready went into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. In other words, they weren't ready, they got locked out. And afterward, the virgins came also saying, now hear these words, because they were the very words Jesus used in the previous paragraph in Matthew 7. Remember, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? Here's what the virgins, the foolish virgins said, Lord, Lord, open to us. And Lord, when you repeat a name or a title, you are emphatically saying they are begging him to open the shut door. And he says, just like he said last week, here's what he says to them. Truly, I say to you, that's a formatic way of saying something with verity. In other words, it's an oath. He's not going to do it. He says, I don't know you. See, they thought they were going to get in. They thought they were ready, but they ended up being shut out. Why? Because they were not prepared. Go back to our text. Again, Jesus contrasts wise people and foolish people and the difference between them. Listen, and the difference between you being wise and you being foolish is whether you are prepared for the day of judgment. And Jesus says, let me show you the story about how you can be wise and not foolish. And Jesus says in the text, going back to our verses, he says, one person built their house And they built it on the rock. The foolish person built their house on the sand. Sand, everything else is the same. The storm, the same rain, the same wind, the same things, both beat on their houses. The difference is the foundation, what they built their house on. And may I say it, fast forward 21st century, the difference is what you build your life on. See, there are some here who have a rock foundation for your life, and some have a sand foundation. And the difference is, and the text makes it clear, that people who build their houses, their lives on sand are people who only hear what Jesus says, like you are doing right now. Except they only hear it. And the Bible says, and they do not do it. It doesn't transform them. They don't practice it. It isn't their lifestyle. And Jesus says, your response to my storm warning and to all of my words, in particular the Sermon on the Mount, if your life doesn't do what I've asked you to do, he says, you have built your life on the sand. And the scary factor in this passage is is that you could be here at this service and you hear God's word all the time every Sunday morning, some of you more often than that. You read Christian books, you listen to sermons, you hear them on podcasts, you might even be involved in a small group. But see, Jesus says, just hearing my words is not enough. To really know God, you must build your life on hearing, listen, and obeying his words. Let me give you an example. When you were growing up, and me too, your parents would tell you that it's very good for you to eat vegetables. How many like vegetables? How many don't like vegetables? Still. Some children, some adults. 
You were told by your parents, it's good for you to eat vegetables. It may come to the place in your life where the dietician has to tell you that you need to eat more vegetables. And you may have even read some literature. I looked up this week, there's an article, The Virtues of Veggies. And even more personal, it says, your vegetables, your victory. So there are, you can read literature on all of those things. You can do all that. But if you don't, what, eat your vegetables, it's not going to do any good for you, right? How many have ever been told by your dentist, you need to floss every day? How many have been told that? Yes. How many have seen the chart on how to floss? Does anyone not know how to floss? You can learn this at church. They even have, and I looked it up, you can have mint-flavored floss. And they're now going to have more flavors coming out to get you to do it. And you told, you told the dentist, in his presence, I am committed to flossing. You've told him that, but yet you go home, you know how to do it, you've been told by the dentist, you've committed in his presence, you have the mint floss, you have the whole package. A week later, you're not flossing. Why? The reality is this. You really don't believe it. You don't believe that if you don't floss that your teeth will rot and fall out of your head. You really don't believe that. Oh, you've heard it. You've heard it lots of times. Oh, you know the value of it, right? You, have, you know the value of it. And you've even made a commitment publicly in the presence of the dentist that you will do it. But somehow you don't. See, you're not building your house on the right foundation. I looked it up on the internet. You know, after Hurricane Andrew in 1992, and I just got back from vacationing in Florida, all the building codes changed. It was the most devastating and costliest natural disaster for insured losses in global history. Literally billions and billions and billions of dollars. And what they found out when they went to change the building codes, thinking that was the answer, is that as they reviewed all the building codes and all the prescriptive requirements they had for people building in Florida because of all the things that are there that can destroy their homes, they found out that their requirements were actually really good ones. And what the research indicated was it wasn't a problem with the requirements, it was that no one was doing them. They had taken shortcuts. They had cut costs when they were building their house so they could keep their mortgage lower. And because of it, thousands of people, when Andrew hit, were homeless, lost their lives. In fact, they lost everything. Recently, my sister Molly came from Kansas with her whole family. Every couple years, they take this big road trip to somewhere in America. And it happened to be New York area this year, so she stayed at our house and one of the places we took them was New York City. And we went to the World Trade Center buildings. And it's interesting, if you've ever been there since everything's been rebuilt, they have a big, huge fountain that has water pouring into it. It's a gigantic hole where the foundation was. And I look at the size of that foundation. It was huge. It was, it was, it was massive. And I said, how can you have this big a foundation and it didn't hold up. And that, then I found out by reading some of the plaques and the literature and information that it wasn't just the two towers where the planes went into it that fell. Did you know because when the other two buildings toppled, it shook the other buildings around it and their foundations gave way too and they fell. Crazy enough, 
in that whole area right there, there's one little church, St. Paul's Chapel. And it is literally not that far, literally from, from where I was until at the World Trade Center Foundation till that little church. You can look, see it right there. It's not far at all. It's just a short walk. That church didn't fall at all. In fact, those whole buildings coming around, massive buildings, 110-story buildings coming around. And this little church had only one broken glass window. That was it. I said, what a difference, what a story. To look around at everything around you is clumbering because they're found in, in this little church. Had one little broken window. And I asked myself, what's your foundation? Will it stand when everything around you is crumbling and falling apart? See, every person in this place today, can I say it again? Every person in this place in the world is building their life on something, on some scheme, on some design, on some belief. People do not build their lives at random. There are no accidents. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a philosophy. We are all, all living by someone's words. Some of us live by evolutionary words to believe that we were not created by God, that rather we are here accidentally, by chance, and because of that, our life has no meaning. I say that's a sandcastle. Some believe the notion and live their lives out accordingly because they believe in secular humanism, which means that you are the measure of all things and that you are the center of your universe and not God. I would tell you, according to Scripture, that's a sandcastle. And some of you here this morning, although you might claim to be a Christian and boast of your love for God, you are more interested and more in tune with the words of Oprah and Dr. Phil than you are the Lord. And it's the word of your daily horoscope or the words of celebrities and sports heroes and government figures, like in the White House, they have more input and impact on your life than the actual word of God does. I've been to the shore even recently when we went to Florida, and I have not done them myself, but I have seen some incredible sandcastles. Have you not? You can go on the internet. You can see them. They're not the ones I built when I was a little kid that you put the little sand in the bucket, you turn it over, and you have a couple. No, these, I mean, huge. I mean, they have castle walls and a moat, and the, the, it's unbelievable, the detail. But you know what I found? You can make the little one that I made, this little one's terrible. Or you can make this gigantic one that took you hours or even longer. But you know what I found about every sandcastle? That when the waters come in, they all disintegrate. (laughs) Every single one of them. Because there are people today who believe that they can build a more elaborate sandcastle. They can have this in their life, and if they had this in their life, and if they believed this and had this, See, that this will make me okay. This will really do it for me. This will really satisfy my life. But I found this. Every sandcastle is temporary. Every single one of them, without exception. They all disintegrate. And Jesus says, you're foolish. You're foolish to think that you can build your life on religion without righteousness. His righteousness. You are foolish to think that you can build your life on some sort of truth without transformation. Beliefs without behavior, he says. You are foolish to think that you can just come to church and hear my words, but actually never live them out or very seldom live them out in your life. See, Jesus says you're foolish. You're building your house on sand. And only the day of judgment 
we'll be able to declare it to be true. It's unfortunate, but there are teenagers, perhaps even in our church today, who come to church on Sunday morning and you're here today. Sundays and Wednesdays you're here because your parents say that you are here. And you see and hear God's words on Sundays and Wednesdays, but the words you really live by are the world's words. And it's obvious because at your school and your job and the friends that you have demonstrate it and the girlfriends that you pick and the boyfriends that you have, it's obvious whose words really influence your life. There are singles perhaps in our church today who are here and you know what God's words are and you know what a life built on a rock looks like because you grew up with parents who did it. And you watched them live their lives and you saw what their values and their morals and their priorities are, but yet you still build sandcastles. You choose to build your lives on things that you know will disintegrate when they are washed away by the tide of God's wrath. But you still make those choices. And so I read the text and say, why do people who are Christians who come to church and they hear this text, why in the world would this guy build his house on the sand? Why do people who grow up in our church leave our church and go somewhere else. Why do people build their lives on the sand? And I thought, maybe he just miscalculated the weather. Maybe the guy who built, I call him the sand man, why, why did, he, did he think his life would always be smooth? Is he like the guy who built the barns in Scripture in Jesus' story, now build bigger and better, not knowing that that day his life would be required of him? Maybe it's because... Our teenagers and singles look around, even in our own church and maybe in their own family, and they say, well, it's what everybody else is doing. It's the popular way to live. Maybe it's like the text says. It's just easier that way. Jesus said the wide road is easy. It's not hard. Maybe it's because it takes more time to build on the rock, and they don't want to invest. Maybe because it takes more sacrifice. They have to be the only one in school who's not sexually active. They'd have to be the only one who doesn't cut corners and cheat. They'd have to be the only one who actually honored and obeyed their parents. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's because it's more popular to live on the sand. Maybe it's because it's more exciting to live on the sand. Maybe they think coming and following Jesus, hopefully not, because they look at our lives and think it's boring. I don't know. But I think they think it's easier And it's not just our teens and our singles, it's us, isn't it? I think at times we think it's easier to show up at church once a week for an hour than to develop real spiritual roots and a godly character and be committed to your church. I think it's easier to live in the light of the sunshine than it is in light of the coming storm. It's easier, isn't it, to look good than to actually be good. It's easier, isn't it, to follow the world, the flesh, and the devil? Isn't it more enticing? Isn't it more pleasurable? Isn't it more fun to follow all of those things than to follow Jesus? See, there's no cross you have to pick up. There's no load you have to carry. There's no denial that you have to make. So the answer, why? Why do people, why are you and I maybe building our lives on sand? Well, the last two verses give us an idea. When Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished. Why were they astonished at Jesus' teaching compared to the religious leaders? You know why? Because all the religious leaders borrowed from what everybody else said, and they quoted everybody else. But Jesus was a rabbi who didn't do that. 
Jesus says, here's the authority I have. It's my own authority that I get from God the Father. See, I think in the end, the ultimate issue with people who live their lives and build them on the sand is an authority issue. They flat out don't want Jesus telling them how to live their lives. And they demonstrate it by not letting their parents tell them what to do. And they don't want teachers to tell them what to do. And eventually, sometimes in extreme cases, they don't want the police telling them what to do. It's an authority issue. See, people want to get into heaven, but they don't want to get heaven into them. They don't want to change. They don't want to obey God's laws. They don't want to change their lifestyle. And they certainly don't want to admit that they are wrong about what they're doing. But see, then judgment day comes. It finally does. There there is a delay, and there's time that passes, and people begin to think that, oh, time has passed. Jesus isn't coming back, and I don't don't really need to worry about that. But the Bible says, and the rains fell. It did come, see, and the floods came, and the winds came. And here's how it's described in verse 25 and 27. And those rains and those floods and those winds, they beat the house. I mean, they beat it. It means to strike against. It means it's tearing it down if it could. And see, on Judgment Day, when you stand, it may be delayed, but it will come. And Jesus says, and it will come with a fury and a torrent. And the winds will be more than you can stand if you're not standing on the rock, that is. The end of verse 27 says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, the house of the foolish person. And look how the sermon... Now see, this is the last words, the very last word of the Sermon on the Mount. And it fell, and great... Hear the warning in that? And great was the fall of it. In the original language, it goes like this. And the fall of it was... Great, and the word is mega, like mega gulp at 7 Eleven or where they have it. See, it means huge. And the idea is get this. See, when the house falls and you thought you were standing and you thought you were weatherproofed and you thought you'd take preparations and you hadn't, it will be devastating like nothing else in your life. It's time for a home inspection, isn't it? It's time. In Florida, they're having problems because they didn't realize it when they built entire neighborhoods that they built them on such swampy ground that now sinkholes are swallowing houses up whole. And out of the blue, anytime you, there's no warning, there's no preparation, the whole ground gives way and the house literally sinks and teeters and goes underground with people in it if they're at home. The article I read, Sinkholes Swallow Homes Whole. The last line of the person who went out to report on it said, I looked around at all the devastation and destruction, and here's the last line. Everything they had was in there. Everything. See, if you build your life on the sand... It's like building it on a sinkhole. See, you're not going to be ready because it could cave in at any moment, any moment, and everything you have is in there. 
But see, God brought you here today because he wants to give you a choice. You don't have to build your life on the sand. You can build your life on the rock. You can prepare today. We went to the beach, and it rained literally three days all day long on my vacation. I'm not bitter about it. We went to the beach all day one day and a very small part of another. When we go to the beach, I completely embarrass my family. In fact, I had someone in church come up to me and had the audacity to say that they'd never seen someone ride a, ride a jet ski completely clothed from head to toe. And the reason is, in my defense, is I went to the dermatologist and they said, right here on my face on both sides, you have precancerous cells. Not cancer. I love the word pre. That you've been out in the sun too much and you need to be cautious. And so here's what they said. Here's what you do. I said, well, can I never go to the beach? Oh, no, you can go to the beach, but here's what you must do. So they said, I have this UV 70 cream and I put it on my face all over and I have a spray that I use and I have UV reflectant long sleeve shirts. And they said, you put the towel over your legs. Why even go, right? I know what you're thinking. And then I have what my daughter Mackenzie loves the most, as I have a bucket hat. Uh, It's this hat, and it's got a broad rim that goes all the way around. It has the little skirting that comes down over your neck, the little thing, and you can pull it up tight. Oh, yeah. Once I found out that she hates that hat, oh, yeah, I was wearing it all the time. I had that thing up to here. I look like a complete doofus. I absolutely did. But you know what I did? Listen, I heard what the dermatologist said. If you don't do these things, you don't take action, one of these times you come in here, I'm going to tell you that it's actually cancer and we're going to have to dig it out. I'm not into that. So you know what I do? I do all the things that aren't cool. I have white crud on my face. I wear a stupid hat. I cover up, but I'm on the beach. Can I tell you this? Because I prepared. I have a little kit, a little bot, I have it all. Right? Because here's what I believe. I believe cancer will kill me. Do you believe that? See, if you believed that your sin and your living your way, not under Jesus' words and his Torah and his authority, see, do you believe doing your own thing will kill you forever? Jesus said, you better, because there's a storm coming. And you better be prepared for it, he says, because if you're not, great, great will be the fall of it. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, we don't always give invitations. In fact, I know it's normal to sing an invitation song that's kind of slow and moving to get you feeling or but we're going to do a faster song and the reason i chose 408 how firm a foundation because it says exactly what we've been talking about how firm a foundation ye saints of the lord is laid for your faith listen in his excellent word oh see that's the question who are you listening to young people the latest latest rapper the greatest, latest singer, some sports hero, some talk show person, some celebrity personality. Listen, their lives are built on sand. God helped them. Can I say it like he helped me and you? 
Not because we're better. We're not better. We're not superior. We're just graced. That's all. But I warn you, those words, those philosophies, those lifestyles are going to disintegrate. They won't withstand the storm. They won't. Hear me, young person. This is for you today. Single, adult, you are building your life on the wrong thing. If it isn't Jesus and his word, it's the wrong thing and great will be the fall of it. But there's hope because you don't have to be foolish. You can be wise. And God brought you here today because he wants to give you wisdom, wisdom that will save your soul both now and for eternity. And you might say, Pastor Walker, I, I need to come today. I need to renounce the house I've built on sand. And maybe you've been building on it for years, decades. But you've seen building your house on that sand has ruined your kids and your relationship with them. Maybe it's already married, ruined one marriage, maybe another one. Maybe it's ruined your finances, but that's nothing compared to ruining your eternity. Would you prepare today? Would you get ready? It's not just walking the aisle and saying a simple prayer and magically everything's good. No, it's saying, Jesus, I want to submit to your authority. I want to live out your words every day in submission to it for the rest of my life. That's what it is. This isn't just ticket to heaven. This is a lifestyle change that you're signing up for, if I can say. Father, the warning has been issued. The storm is coming. I pray today that there are those here, men, women, young, old, boys, girls, they would heed your warnings. And they wouldn't just hear it today, but when the song is played at the end, they would act on it. They would do it by stepping out and coming and saying, I need help. I need to build my house on Jesus and his words. Please have mercy. Lavish your love on them like you did us, that they might worship your glory as you deserve. For it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen. If you would, with us, 408, let's stand and sing as we close, How Firm a Foundation. As we sing, and you would need help to build your house on Jesus, would you come and let us help you? 408, let's stand together.
God is speaking to you today. And the Lord brought you here, and you know you're building on sand. Would you eat that morning? Would you come? Come right now, even as I speak. Balcony, main floor, just come forward and say, Pastor Walker, I need to build on the rock. Would you come? by worshiping the Lord that last verse the soul that on Jesus together Father, dismiss us with your blessing, for we pray in the name and through the mighty blood of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.